Hello, I'm Abram Vanningen. And I'm Joanne Diaz. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. And today we're joined by a special guest, Rafia Zafar, to discuss Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poem, We Wear the Mask. Rafia is professor of English, African and African American Studies, and American Culture Studies at Washington University in St. Louis. She's the author, most recently, of Recipes of Respect, a great book about African American food cultures, but also the author of We Wear the Mask, African Americans Write American Literature, 1760 to 1870. And since Rafia is a wonderful colleague and friend of mine with an office just down the hall, we thought it would be great to have her join us for a discussion of Dunbar's famous poem, We Wear the Mask. Welcome to the podcast, Rafia. Hi, thank you. I, I'm delighted that you invited me. Would you be willing to read this poem for us? Oh, absolutely. We Wear the Mask, um, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. We wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile. With torn and bleeding hearts we smile and mouth with myriad subtleties. Why should the world be overwise in counting all our tears and sighs? Nay, let them only see us while we wear the mask. We smile, but oh, great Christ, our cries to thee from tortured souls arise. We sing, but oh, the clay is vile beneath our feet and long the mile. But let the world dream otherwise. We wear the mask. Thank you so much. Um, so I, I have a question just to get us started, which is you, you've got a book that's about African-American literature uh, mm -hmm. in the century leading, basically leading up to this poem. This poem was published in 1896. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's called We Wear the Mask. And I, I'm just sort of curious how you landed on that title for the African-American literature that you study. And, and maybe to explain that would help us uh, as, a, as a way to get into this poem itself. Yes, yeah, certainly. I was studying with the late and, and great uh, his, intellectual historian Nathan Huggins because I thought I was going to write on the Harlem Renaissance, and I eventually did. But in reading his, his study, Harlem Renaissance, I came across We Wear the Mask, and Huggins is using that from the poem as a metaphor for how much African-American creatives, writers, artists were masking or putting on a different, allegedly more mainstream face hmm. in order to gain an audience. And one of the questions was, he said that he posed, and of course that the writers themselves were posing, is at, one po at what point are you unable to take the mask off? I can't remember what horror movie there is, but that is the horror of it, right? At some point, you you find yourself unable to to speak in your original, your native language. You find yourself unable to look like the way you were. You're wearing the mask, and the mask can't come off. So, a strategy, a literary strategy, I saw in these early authors, whether it's Wheatley, whether it's Frederick Douglass whether it's um, Elizabeth Keckley, is writing in forms that are visible, that are knowable to a white mainstream, they could forward their, their sort of political agendas, their psychic agendas, their, their 
demand, pleas and demands for equality and equity. And under the guise of writing what we, you know, we could then think of as mainstream literature. Hmm. Um, in the end, I, you know, I conclude this is where Dunbar comes in particularly because I think this was the tragedy. If not, well, it's a tragic irony of Dunbar's life is that but with the fall of Reconstruction, when the gains of, of the Civil War and the acts following the Civil War were dashed, African Americans realized that polite or literary strategies weren't necessarily going to work, mm. and they were going to speak to each other more. And this is around the rise, and there are a lot of interesting young scholars working on this today about um, on the rise of Black print culture, Black newspapers, Black publishing houses, mm -hmm. um, and then African Americans really started speaking in a way and writing in a way that a white audience wasn't necessarily expected or even mm. desired. And then mm. we have the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah. yeah, that's that's kind of a long answer. Yeah, no, that's oh, great. It's amazing. Yeah. Can you say more about this tragedy of, uh, uh, in a certain sense of Paul Lawrence Dunbar as, as you understand it? Because, I mean, it, in a way, he did have a national audience and even an international audience at that time, at that very time. So he was born in 1872. He died young and at the age of 33 in 1906. Yeah. And he had a huge audience. And yet we, we there is a kind of tragedy. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that? Absolutely. Absolutely. What brought him to fame, big fame, were the dialect poems. Poems that, that harken back to the, the plantation lore, the plantation myths. And these were popular because the language was in, in a, his rendered vernacular, which to the ear wasn't, that, you know, if you're a linguist, it's, it wasn't exactly accurate. I mean, he was mm. from Ohio, though his parents were, who had been enslaved, his parents were from Kentucky. You know, it fed into the, the sort of the rising myths that, you know, that we know, right? The South may have lost the war, but they in many ways won the cultural war, right? The mm -hmm. romance of the South when, you know, African-Americans were actually pretty happy to work for whites without pay. You know, they had a room and board, et cetera. And Dunbar's shot to prominence, not for something like sympathy or we wear the mask, the ones that are in quote unquote standard English using traditional rhyme forms. But it was the ones that, you know, with titles like When Melindy Sings or Little, you know, Little Brown Baby, that that was a tragedy because he wrote beautifully. You know, you could say he was a coats he was a poetic code switcher. Right. Um, and it was the poems that people believed, right? That probably were the way Paul Lawrence Dunbar really talked. Of course, he didn't talk like that. He was from Ohio. He, you know, he was whatever. He was top of his class. He worked on a newspaper. So on the one hand, he was highly educated. He was discovered by mainstream poets. But on the other, people didn't, they, they weren't clamoring to hear more poems like We Wear the Mask. They were clamoring mm -hmm. for more poems like Wendy Cornbread's Hot. Uh -huh. mm. So it fed in in many ways to what what we now call the the trope of the happy slave. This 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 mm -hmm. idea this 
this sense of, um, oh, enslaved people were, were actually happy. Look at how much they smile. Look at how much they sing. And, and it's precisely those tropes um, that he's unmasking in this poem. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so there's a way in which you could imagine a poem like this, We Wear the Mask, as almost apologetic in some ways for his own career, or at least a, a kind of reflection on his own career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually think it's one of those, you know, hiding in plain sight poems where he's really I think he really is and it he really is speaking I mean this debt we pay to human guile I mean he is addressing the difficulty of having to speak in particular ways with some of his poetry or the way African Americans you know even after slavery right I use this idea Hartman's justly famous phrase, people were still living in the afterlife of slavery, which meant deference to whites. So you had to grin, right? You had to lie and say, oh yeah, everything's just fine. And it's the, I guess the resolution, right? People who are coming out of, you know, a Christian, Christian belief that at least Christ hears us, right? Mm. Um, you understand us. And at some point, we will be rewarded. But it is, you know, I think to, you know, I'm thinking of James Weldon Johnson's, right? The, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, what's often called the Negro National Anthem, right? It, but still, that stony, that road we trod is stony, right? Stony, the road we trod. I'll try not to sit, I'll start singing. And, but I'm, <laughs> people always inch away from me, like on assemblies and stuff when I would sing because I can't carry a tune. But, you know, that's, those are, that he's toggling back and forth between knowing how hard it is, but equally knowing that in order to go forward, at least, you know, in the 1890s, in the early 20th century, people had to dissemble. You're talking about his personal suffering and disappointment, but he Mm -hmm. uses a collective we. Mm -hmm. And I'm so interested in when poets choose a we perspective, because this is such a short lyric expression, but it's a collective expression of this bitterness and disappointment. And he's using a very specific poetic form. On this podcast, we haven't talked about this form. It's called the Rondo. And I wonder if we could talk about how choosing a form like this can actually contribute to the content of the poem. And mm. Abram, do you do you want to talk about this? So a Rondo comes out of uh, 15th century France, uh, and a rondo can have a variety of different forms in and of itself, but but we have a very classic form here of the rondo. If you look up rondos in dictionaries, they'll often give this poem in English as an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what a rondo does is it takes the very first beginning of the first line, we and in this case, we wear the mask, and it makes it a refrain. So you'll see the we wear the mask happens there. We wear Mm -hmm. the mask happens at the end of the second stanza and at the end of the third stanza. And so every rondo will have that. The other Mm -hmm. thing a rondo has is it has only two rhymes in it. So here we have uh, the A rhyme is lies, eyes. We'll talk about how subtleties is not quite a rhyme with that, even though Mm -hmm. it looks like a rhyme with that. Sighs, cries, arise, otherwise. That's, That's the A rhyme. The B rhyme is all the aisles, guile, smile, while, vile, mile. So there's mm-hmm. only two rhymes. 
And the the refrain, we wear the mask, is not a rhyme with either one of them. And that's that's classic mm. rondo too. And then the last thing to understand with this is that the rondo is is classically three stanzas. A five-line stanza, which is what we have here, a four-line stanza, and a six-line stanza. Hmm. And the refrain is the begin again, the beginning four words or four syllables. And then it comes back at the end of the second stanza, end of the third stanza. So in every way you can imagine, this is a very classic rondo. The thing about the rondo, though, and this goes back to the long history of it, is that it was uh, it was meant to be, in a certain sense, a kind of song and dance. It was a say la vie. It was a live and let be. It was a it was a kind of a fun and a kind of a playful form in out of French. And so you have him picking a form that is about giving a song and dance to people. He's basically choosing a form that is a mask uh, and letting us see behind it at the same time. And mm-hmm. if I could just jump in for a minute, as I hear you describe the form, Abram, my head is spinning because it is so restrictive, right? It's so hard to fill all of those requirements of the form, but he does it in such an incredible way. I think it's worth looking at that fifth line. So we have, this should rhyme with lies and eyes. The first two lines are, we wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. Then the fifth line should rhyme with that. It says, and mouth with myriad subtle T's. Not subtle ties, subtle T's. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to Kevin Young, the great um, poet and critic and writer, talk about this poem. And he says, that's the moment. That's the moment where just for a moment with that off rhyme, that slant rhyme, that rhyme that doesn't quite rhyme, where the mask slips, um, mm-hmm. where he mm-hmm. shows on purpose that the mask is constantly slipping and that it constantly has to be put back on. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. And the dance makes sense to make another kind of sense to me, because, mm-hmm. for example, if you think about the tradition of blues music or just music in general, you know, and that's often a tension in, in African-American cultural criticism, right? The, often writers feel that um, their work is not as deeply imbued with a, a black consciousness as mm-hmm. music, that there's something about music that can transgress and escape the linguistic modalities of English, like mm. having to work in, in like an Anglophone mode, as opposed to music, which transcends, you know, it transcends language, obviously. Mm-hmm. But when you think about blues musicians in particular, and I'm thinking of people who've written about it, like Shirley Ann Williams or Angela Davis, um, that we the whole notion of the singer, the singer, right? So we're thinking about singing and dancing and black performance is maybe an I on stage, but they are standing in for the we. So there's kind of a, a metonym or a synecdoche, you know, what, depending yeah. on how you're shading that metaphor. But the we stands in for the whole people. So then Dunbar is deliberately you know, implicating himself in the community. He doesn't say we African-Americans, you know, it's implied by, certainly it's understood by your African-American audience reading this, that this, the poetic persona, the individual is speaking for the communal. When I look at that first stanza, we wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. 
This debt we pay to human guile, with torn and bleeding hearts we smile, and mouth with myriad subtleties. It's it's such a painful first stanza because um, we have that old cliche of eyes being windows to the soul, mm-hmm. but those windows are shaded here that we can, you know they can't be accessed right because they're wearing the mask. And then the smile, which ought to be an indicator of joy. Uh, is actually masking um, a tearing and a bleeding. Um, it's it's a very difficult first stanza. Mm-hmm. And then that transitions to the second stanza. Why should the world be overwise in counting all our tears and sighs? Nay, let them only see us while we wear the mask. I wonder if we could talk about that second stanza and the question that it sets up and the kind of mm-hmm. resignation and bitterness that answers that question. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, at that point, you know, we're thinking about the turn of the last century and we're thinking, you know, this is the, the you know, the period of you know, in U.S. history that uh, the historian Rayford Logan has referred to as the nadir, meaning, mm. and, you know, the lowest point in U.S. race relations. Yeah. So, at Dunbar's acknowledging that it's like why so why should we let them see the the trauma that we are living on a daily basis we don't need the people outside to see how much they are hurting us mm. right Darlene Clark-Klein has written about the, cult, the culture of dissemblance particularly talking about black women mm. right that it was imperative to dissemble it was imperative to hide your feelings, right? And Zora Neale Hurston talks, you know, talks about that in the beginning of Mules and Men. Present what she calls a featherbed resistance, right? So people mm. don't know what's going on inside because it's not going to help you, right? If anything, it's going to hurt you more if you know and they know how much hurt and bitterness and anger you're carrying. So uh, the mask then becomes an essential form of of survival, of protection Mm -hmm. of the self. And, um, you know, this second stanza really interests me because that question, why should the world be overwise in counting all our tears and sighs? I can almost imagine the situation that preceded this question, which is, Perhaps Paul Lawrence Dunbar is speaking to those who might say, why not articulate your grievances? Why not Mm -hmm. say exactly what's upsetting you? And he's basically saying, why should I? Mm -hmm. That has been tried, and it's an exercise in futility, right? Right, right, exactly. Rafi, I'm curious of what you're just saying there about the turn, um, especially in in the late 1800s and so on towards a kind of black audience speaking to a black audience because in some ways the turn from stanza two to stanza three is a turn of audience mm-hmm. yeah it's a, it's a different audience right we smile but yeah. oh great cries our cries to thee from tortured souls arise and the whole notion right of clay the clay is vile that's saying that you know the earth you know the the yeah. daily like living on this plane is is vile right? it's, yeah. it's right. awful but you know we, if you believe in an afterlife someone someone is hearing us it may not be white americans right mm-hmm. there we do have an ear 
Um, that's why we can sing. That's why we can smile. We wear the mask so we can have these dreams, so that we can have these beliefs, that we, so that we can continue on that road. Mm-hmm. So then that means that the mask is not just protection, but an insistence on survival, too. And uh, I only say that or ask it because I'm seeing that exclamation point at the end. What what do you think of that choice to make this Mm -hmm. an exclamation? It's very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's that that emphatic, we wear the mask. Mm -hmm. I think in some ways Dunbar is saying we're going to keep wearing the mask until we can put it down, Mm -hmm. right? Because if we don't wear the mask, then we are going to be, you know, vulnerable for the slings and arrows, right? Mm -hmm. We'll be vulnerable. Uh, But the mask, you can think of it as a, 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 it's a mask and it's a shield. Well, with all of that said, Rafia, would you uh, be willing to read this poem for us again? Sure. We wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile, with torn and bleeding hearts we smile, and mouth with myriad subtleties. Why should the world be overwise in counting all our tears and sighs? Nay, let them only see us while we wear the mask. We smile, but, O oh, great Christ, our cries to thee from tortured souls arise. We sing. But, oh, the clay is vile beneath our feet and long the mile. But let the world dream otherwise. We wear the mask. Wow. Hmm. That was amazing. Thank you so much. Yes, thank Thank you. you for inviting me. For more information about Paul Lawrence Dunbar, please visit our website at poetryforall.fireside.fm. And you can also subscribe to Poetry for All wherever you get your podcasts. And please be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for being with us, Rafia. Oh, thank you again. It was a pleasure.